Hey, uh, today we're going to finish the book of Philippians. And by the way, for those of you who are just getting used to the fact that it's 2017, it's now April. Just want you to to know that. I I looked at that yesterday. I'm like, it can't be. It can't possibly be, but it is. And today we're actually finishing the book of of Philippians. And if you missed any of those sermons in Philippians, just want to encourage you that um, all of those are on our website. So you can go to fogkc.com and hear any of those if you missed them. Or if any of them moved you or or meant something to you and you want to listen to them again, you can do that there. Uh, Today, uh, this passage in the uh, last half of chapter 4 in in the book of Philippians contains one of the five most, in my opinion, um, one of the most misused, misquoted uh, scriptures in the Bible. So I wanted to share with you, somebody said to me one time, you talk about that sometimes about your the verses that are misused or misquoted and and, uh, what are they? So I'm going to give you my top five. Here's number five, Okay. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you, seek and you will find, knock and it will be opened to you. Uh, now, what's the Bible students cheer? Okay, you got it right. Not very cheery, but, but you got the, the context right. You got the, the uh, definition right. Yeah, context, context, context. In this passage, uh, Jesus has just gotten through teaching the disciples how to pray, and he's specifically talking about things that are kingdom focused. Okay? This does not support a prosperity gospel uh, that preachers talk about all the time that teach you to ask for anything you want and you're going to get it like God is some kind of a giant you know, bubblegum machine. You put the penny in, you put the prayer in, and you get what you want. So you just ask for whatever you want and it's guaranteed God's going to give it to you. It doesn't mean that at all. It doesn't say that at all. It doesn't uh, even allude to that. Number four is for where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Now I don't dispute this. But this is quoted for everything, uh, including, you know, even if three people are gossiping about the church in the parking lot, all of a sudden they think that it's okay because two or three are gathered, Jesus is in the midst of us, it's all uh, good, you know. Well, this verse is actually talking about testimonies surrounding church discipline. And what it means is if people are talking or they're testifying about somebody who's been sinful or hurt somebody's uh, feelings or, or been some kind of outward sin, uh, that where two or three are gathered and they, they testify the same, God is in the midst. Now, let's just, just for a second, uh, it's just good doctrine to know that uh, where one or a billion are gathered, Christ is there. Okay, it doesn't matter how many are there, two or three or whoever. Okay, and number three is this verse, Romans 8, 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, this is usually misquoted only in part. Uh, God works all things together for good. Hey, you found out you got cancer this week? It's okay. God works everything to his good, right? Hey, you lost your job this week? It's, it's kind of used sometimes as this really goofy way to just justify everything is good in some kind of way, and, and it includes everything terrible that happens in your life. Well, first of all, look carefully. This passage only applies to those who love God. Okay, it doesn't apply to everybody. It says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. The second thing in this is it's good is being conformed to Christ. That's what it is. It's not in the sense of bringing ease or comfort to our lives. Number two is this passage. Judge not that you be not judged. Of course, this is uh, quoted and and used to justify every bad behavior uh, that's out there. And if anyone points out its badness, they're worse than the one who committed the badness because they're judging them, right? So if I go and rob a bank and then you call the police and tell on me, you've all of a sudden judged me, you're worse than I am a bank robber, right? Because we talk about that, you know, judging. Well, actually, if you read this passage in context, it's actually teaching the opposite of what it sounds like it's teaching. It actually is teaching us to judge one another. 
but it's uh, uh, righteous judgment. In other words, the Bible says, first take the board out of your own eye, then you can see clearly to help your brother with the speck that is in eye. It's talking about hypocrisy. It's not talking about judgment. So in other words, if I come to you and say, hey, you blankety, blankety, blank, 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 you need to stop cussing. I shouldn't do that. First, I should get my own act together in that area, and then I should come and help you get your act together in that area. So it doesn't mean to not judge. It means to judge righteously uh, with righteous behavior. And the last one that's actually in our passage today is this one. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, this is on bumper stickers and signs everywhere. It's in every sports team locker room, which I think is funny because it's always in opposing teams' locker room, and I'm not sure who he's strengthening more. Uh, it's in businesses, gyms, basically anywhere that any kind of competition takes place, or it's just encouragement surrounding overcoming a problem or somehow succeeding in everything that we possibly do. In fact, it's even used sometimes in career counseling for young uh, uh, teenagers uh, to teach them that they can do all things that they want to do. You can be anything you want to be when you're up. Folks, let's just stop telling our kids that lie. It's not true. You want to be the one who discovers America? You can't. doesn't matter how bad you want it. You can't do it. You can't be anything. Now, if you're saying you can choose a different career or you can have a multitude of careers, that's, that's true. But let's just tell, you know, talk about the right thing here. So I want us to look at four quick principles in Philippians chapter 4 today. Uh, but we're going, to finish, uh, we're going to talk about this verse here in just a little bit. Uh, and we're going to finish up Philippians. So the first one we see, the first principle we see in this passage in Philippians is this one. Contentment is found in Christ alone. And by the way, we're going to talk today about being generous in the kingdom. Being generous in the kingdom. We're going to see that the Apostle Paul and the church at Philippi had this very unique relationship. And remember uh, a couple of things. Paul is in this prison in Rome. He's writing to this church in Philippi. It's the only letter he's writing where he's not telling them you're either believing some heresy or you're practicing uh, some kind of heresy in your behavior. You've got something wrong with either your belief or your behavior and you need to correct it. He's just writing this church because he loves them and he's really telling them they're doing a great job. So here it says in, in chapter 4, verses 10 through 13, this. He says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, first Paul is saying here, I rejoice in the Lord that you have revived your concern for me. And then he almost says, uh, uh, almost a correction. He's like, well, um, you've always been concerned for me. I don't mean you've really revived your concern for me, but you weren't able to connect with me before. Uh, you didn't have the opportunity. What he's saying here is, hey, listen, uh, church at Philippi, you guys have partnered with me in ministry uh, kind of the whole way. And I know there was this, uh, we're kind of reviving our relationship now. And he's going, well, it's not really reviving the relationship because we've always had a good relationship. It's just now I'm, I'm in prison. I'm in one spot. It's pretty clear where I'm going to be for a while. And it's easier for us to connect now. Remember, uh, there was no Skype. There was no internet. There were no cell phones. And it was just hard to find a guy who was traveling city to city, getting beat up in every city and running to the next one. It was just hard to find that guy. And so he's telling them that, that, that he really appreciates the relationship they've had over the years. Then he begins to share that he is content in every circumstance. He says, whether I have nothing 
or whether I have abundance, whether I'm hungry or whether I'm at a buffet, it doesn't matter. I am totally and completely content. Folks, what Paul's saying here, that his contentment in life is not found in his circumstances, it's found in his Savior. We, we get caught up in, in letting our circumstances uh, uh, determine for us whether we're, we're content in life or not. Listen, if you, ever, if you are not content with what you have now, you will never be content with what you get. You just won't. If you're thinking, man, if I could just get that one more promotion, or if I could just get that one more raise, if I could, if I could just get this, or if I could just get that, or if I could, we could just buy that house, if we could find a way. Folks, if you aren't content with life now, you won't be content when you've got one more something. Contentment comes from who you know, not what you have. Now, that's worth writing down. I'm just telling you. That was worth the price of admission right there. Contentment comes from who you know, not what you have. Then he, Paul, Paul states this famous verse. He says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He's talking about being able to handle the particular topic of God's uh, supply and trusting God and having contentment in his relationship with Christ, no matter what the circumstances are. So, the next time you find yourself in jail for proclaiming your faith, beaten and persecuted, and you're not concerned with what you have and what you don't have, that's the time when you should put the bumper sticker above your jail cell door that says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Okay? It's not to tell you your team's going to win. So don't use it for silliness like that. Don't, don't try to make God's word fit into some kind of a, you know, in, in almost a, a, a childish immaturity of using God's word. Paul's saying, listen, guys, if God's got me in this situation and I don't have any food, I'm content. And he's going to somehow get me through this. I'll have the strength. He's going to help me. Folks, that, that is, and so listen, you know what another time when you should use that verse? When you do get that bad report from the doctor, when you do lose that job, when you don't know what the future holds and you go, okay, God, I don't know how you're going to work this out, but I'm content and I trust you because you're trustworthy. You've been faithful to me. And so I'm going to be content right here with chaos going on around me. I'm going to be content knowing who I know and not putting my trust in the things that I have. The second principle we see Paul talk about here is this. Earn a reputation for generosity. Look what Paul writes about the church at Philippi in verses 14 and through 16. He says, Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Now, Paul says, listen, you're the only church that is given to me. You're the only church that has partnered with me my whole time in ministry. In fact, when I was at Thessalonica, you not only sent me resources once, you did it again. I mean, nobody would expect that. Now, before you start thinking to yourself, well, these people in Philippi, they were probably pretty well off. They were giving to Paul, the missionary, you know, and they weren't regular folks like us. Look what it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, just so you get a, a bead on who these folks are. 
It says, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Folks, these people were dirt poor. And even in their, in their deep poverty, they gave with what the Bible says right there, a wealth of generosity. Even their generosity was generous. They were generous with their generosity. They were, many of these folks were struggling to eat, and yet they gave to God's kingdom by giving to the local church at Philippi and then the elders of the church of Philippi sending gifts to Paul through couriers and, and, and other missionaries to help him grow the kingdom. Now that's what was happening, folks. These people earned a reputation for their generosity. And do you know how they did it? I'm not a very bright fellow. They were generous. That's how they earned their reputation of being generous people. You know, Fellowship of Grace, when I talk to people about Fellowship of Grace, uh, we have, we, we have, we're beginning to really get a reputation. And it's a reputation that we're a very friendly church. Now, that's a really good reputation to have. It's a whole lot better than being an unfriendly church, right? Uh, a very, very good reputation to have, uh, and, and I'm excited about that. And you know why we're getting a reputation for being a friendly church? Because we're friendly. Yeah, so you guys are a smart crowd. They catch on quick. Uh, right. Okay. I, I like that. But wouldn't it be really cool if we lived in a way that people around Parkville, people around the Northland go, oh, yeah, the, that church over there on 45 and 9 by the Quick Trip, they, uh, that Fellowship of Grace thing. Those people are really generous. Wouldn't that be really cool? And I don't mean just to you know, brag on ourselves. or just, I just mean, wouldn't it be really cool if people viewed us that way because that's who we were? See, this wasn't some strategy. This wasn't some marketing idea by a couple of guys in the church at Philippi. Hey, let's start this marketing strategy and we'll get everybody to really think we're a generous church. It wasn't that at all. They were just generous. They were just generous. Even out of having nothing, they were generous. And so they built this reputation. We should be known as generous individuals here. And, and we should be known as a church of generous people. By the way, we're actually kind of set up that way. I don't know if you realize this, and I don't want to get too much in the weeds, but when we do our budget, we specifically want to be, we want to be, be growing in generosity. And so as we put our budget together every year, we have line items for every ministry, and that's a fixed cost. So the children's minister says, hey, we think we need this much to do the things we need to do this year. Okay, that's a fixed cost. So all of the things in our budget are fixed cost. There's only one area that it's a percentage, and that's our giving our giving to foreign missions, our giving to, to state missions and local missions. The reason that it's a percentage is because if God blesses us, we want to give more. We want to bless others more. We want to be in a position where as God's blessing us, we're blessing others. And we don't want to have to have a special called business meeting to just bless others. We just want it in the, in the system. And it is in our system here. The third principle that I see Paul talk about here is this. Spiritual fruit is the reward for kingdom giving. Look in verses 17 and 18, it says this. And he's just talked about their generosity. He says, hey, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, 
a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Remember, Paul just said, hey, listen, I'm content. If I never get another dime, I'm content. I'll, I'll just work it out. So what he says here is, but I'm excited for you guys because the church receives the spiritual fruit and credit for the gift. Now, if Paul was a used car salesman, and I apologize if there's any used car salesmen in here, please, okay? Uh, but but if, if he was somebody who was, a, uh, you know, trying to get over on somebody, he might be saying, you might think, well, he's just saying that. He really does care about the gift. He really does want the gift. He's really excited about the gift. He's, but he's not. He's 100% honest here. He says, listen, I don't even care. I don't even care if you give to me because I'm already content. But I'm excited that you're giving to me. You know why? Because when you do, you get blessed for it. You get credit for it. When things happen and, and this money has actually invested in something worthwhile, you're the ones that get credit for it. You know, we should be more concerned with what we're investing in forever and less concerned about what we're investing for today. Think about this. Every dime that we spend on ourselves and on our comfort is forever lost. Think about that. Now, let's say you go out and have a really, really nice dinner. You invest a good chunk of money in a really nice dinner. Think about where that investment finally winds up. <laughs> Just think about that for a minute. That's not a very good investment, is it? I mean, not really. I mean, it tastes good, but it's gone pretty quickly. But every dime we spend on God's kingdom is forever invested in eternal things. Think about that. When we give to a missionary and that missionary goes somewhere where people have not heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, they have not heard that Jesus died on the cross to pay for their sins, and if they would put their faith and trust in him to do that, he would forgive their sins. When we give to a missionary like that, and he goes to a place where people haven't heard that, and he leads a bunch of people to Jesus, you get credit for it. I don't know how God does all that. I don't know how the scoreboard works. I don't know, I don't know any of that stuff. All I'm saying is God's really clear here when he says, listen, when you invest your resources, your time, your talent, your treasure, all of that, when you invest your resources, but Paul's specifically talking about money here, when you invest them in things that are eternal, you get an eternal payback. You get some kind of eternal credit for the investment you have made in the kingdom. I don't know exactly how it's going to work, but I picture it in my mind that when we get to heaven, people are going to walk up to us and say, hey, listen, thanks for what you did. I don't know you. Well, you, you gave to a missionary. You gave to your church that gave to missionaries. You, you, you gave here. You gave here. You did things. You invested in the things that matter, and I'm here because of you and what you invested I don't know how all that's going to work, folks, but God's clear that when we invest in eternal things, somehow that, that investment is, is given, we're given credit for that. And we don't do it because of that, folks. You know why we should do that? 
Because God has invested in us his greatest asset, his son. He gave his son to die on the cross for us. How do you you repay him for that? Don't you really hate it when you have a friend that you just barely know and they get you a really nice birthday gift? Because then you've got to figure out when their birthday is and give them one back, right? So so we look at what God has done for us. How do do I ever pay him back for that? I can't. can't possibly. But I want to. I want to try. Finally, Paul says, don't worry, guys. God will supply all your needs. God will supply all your needs. Before he signs off in his letter to them and says goodbye, he wants to remind them not to worry. Remember, he said that a couple of times in this letter. Because God will supply their needs. Look what it says in verses 19 through 23. He says, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. So he tells them, guys, don't forget this. Don't forget this. And he knows they haven't. But he says, listen, no matter what, don't forget, God will supply all your needs. Now, this is not a giving sermon. And, and listen, we need to, uh, I don't apologize for talking about money because uh, other than hell, it's the thing that Jesus talked about more than anything else in the New Testament. And, and there is a connection between our pocketbook and our heart. There is no denying that. Okay? But a few principles we might want to remember as we think about God supplying all of our needs. God created everything, therefore everything belongs to him. He owns everything. He owns it all. But God entrusts a little bit to each one of us so that we can manage it. He says, hey, Michael, I'm going I'm to give you some stuff and let you, let you see how you do with it. I'm going to see how you manage it. And there's another biblical principle of if we, if we manage a little bit, God entrusts more to us. Now, it's not always in the area of money. It's not always in the area that if I, if I do well with what God has given me financially, he'll give me more finances. Maybe he'll give me more influence. Maybe he'll give me more responsibility to, to serve others. Maybe he'll give me a lot of different things. But it's clear that if we manage well what God has given us, he entrusts us with more. Folks, we understand that principle. We all do it with our kids, right? You don't give an eight-year-old a car, you know, well, you know, hopefully. You know, you, you see how they are. You give them a little bit of responsibility. If they do good with that, you, you give them a little more. Even when they begin to drive, you let them drive to the grocery store and get milk and come home. That's it. And you give them more and more responsibility. We get this principle. It's universal. And God has, has set it up that way so that he can trust us with more and more and more. Paul is encouraging the church and, 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 and Philippi, you know, the church there then, and he's encouraging us today. Now, uh, when it comes to giving, a lot of people ask me about Fellowship of Grace. Are you guys, you guys preach and believe in tithing? So let me, just, let me just break that down for you very quickly, okay? Tithing is part of the Old Testament Mosaic Law. 
It is not in the New Testament. In fact, it's only mentioned once in the New Testament, and it's mentioned by Jesus when he's talking to the uh, Pharisees before the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. That's really important. Okay? And, and, and none of us are living under the Mosaic Law. But I want to point out something because I know a lot of people are like, yes, tithing is not New Testament. Woohoo! I can do 2%. That's awesome. Listen, uh, you find a place where Jesus lowered the bar. I don't find it. Jesus always said things like, you've heard it said, do not kill. I say to you, don't hate your brother, because if you do, you've really killed him in your heart. Jesus didn't lower the bar, he raised the bar. You hear Jesus say things like, you've heard it said in the Old Testament, do not commit adultery. I tell you, don't even lust after a woman. If you do, you've committed adultery in your heart. Jesus raised the bar again. See, folks, knowing Jesus doesn't mean, hey, I get a pass. I get a pass. I, don't, I, can, I can lower the bar and be okay. That's not what, what Christianity is about. Jesus always raised the bar. So if the Old Testament bar was 10% of your gross income, whatever Jesus raised it to is, is higher. And, and we say, well, wait a minute. Uh, the Bible says to give uh, generously. It says to give with a, with, you know, with a joyful heart. I'm really happy about 2%. I'm really happy with 50 bucks a month. I, I want to challenge us to be thinking in terms, because the Bible also tells us to be sacrificial givers in the New Testament. We talked about sacrifice a few weeks ago, and I defined sacrifice for you as giving up something of worth in preference for something of greater worth. That's what sacrifice is, Okay? Uh, uh, me, me, you know, if you have a, a, a problem with a creek in the back of your yard and you need a couple of bags of trash to fill it up and I give you my trash bag to fill up your, your creek so it doesn't come through your yard, I haven't given up much. It's not a big sacrifice for me. It might help you, but it's not much a sacrifice for me, is it? I want to challenge our thinking for just a minute. For those of us who claim to be believers, for those of us who claim to be Christians who are following Jesus, can we name... Three things sacrificed so far this year so that we can be more generous. So, so are there three things that we value set aside so that we can just be more generous people? I can tell you I'm struggling with that thinking. I'm struggling with that thinking. I think Julie and I try very hard to be very generous people. And I think we do a relatively good job of that. But if it comes to what have we really given up in order to be more generous, that takes it to a whole other level. Now, I know that most of you are going, well, you do drive that old beat-up piece of junk, you know, that old van. That, yeah, yeah, I do. Okay, that's one thing, but can't think of much else. You know. So I want us to be thinking, folks, if we want to be generous people like this, if we want to be known for our generosity, if we want to be, be generous people and earn that reputation, we've got to think outside of, I'm going to be generous with what doesn't hurt me to give up. Sacrifice. That's not really New Testament giving. Paul is thanking them for their generosity 
And I think God wants to thank us today if we will be generous. We have got to be generous in the kingdom, folks, no matter what. No matter what. No matter you know, what circumstances come into our life, we've got to be generous people. Now, you know, part of being a generous person means sometimes you're on the receiving end of that. Paul's on the receiving end of, of some of this generosity because he needs it, even though he says he doesn't. He needs to survive. But the reality is, folks, that means that most of us need to sacrifice in a greater way. Throughout the book of Philippians, we've seen that Paul has encouraged us to really do a lot of things, to do a lot of things. Think back. And every single one he said, listen, you're a good church. You're already doing these things. And I think we are a good church. I think we are doing a lot of these things. But Paul's saying, guys, don't be satisfied with where you're at. Keep going. Keep going. Keep going. Don't give up. Do these things no matter what. Things like have joy in the ministry no matter what. The gospel has got to advance no matter what. We need to stand firm in unity no matter what. We need to be humble like Jesus no matter what. We need to hold fast to our faith no matter what. We need to be servant Christians, really servant Christians no matter what. We need to pursue Jesus no matter what. We need to be righteous no matter what. We need to focus on the praiseworthy things of God no matter what. And we need to be generous in the kingdom no matter what. Folks, this is what Paul is writing the church of Philippi to do, and I think that's what God's telling us to do today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Oh, Lord, what a challenge it is for us to really be followers of Jesus the way he wants us to follow. We like to redefine that in an easier, more comfortable way. And yet your word challenges us to tell us what that way looks like. God, forgive me for the times that I have been less generous than I could have been. Forgive me for um, being selfish and spending on myself when there are others in need around me. Father, help us to become more generous people. Help us as a church for us to become more generous. Help us to invest in the things that really have eternal value. Lord, we work hard for our money. You've given us uh, bodies and minds to work hard and to earn. But Father, help us not to do all of that, to just waste it on ourselves and on things that are of this earth and will pass away. God, help us to really invest in things that matter, that really matter in life. People's eternal souls, the spreading of your kingdom. God, we need your help. We need your help in a big way. We sang songs this morning that talked about trusting you and about you coming and doing the thing you do. And when I look around at this church, I see that this could only be done by your hand. And so, Father, help us to continually tap into the power that is you. Help us to be content with you so that we can see you do really incredible, wonderful, eternal things through us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.